98 of the Church Bibles. Starting to read at chapter 2, verse 11, page 1199. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Going on to chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it being Trinity Sunday, I'm proposing to do what most clergy try to avoid at all costs, and that is to preach a sermon on the Trinity. The reason clergy avoid it is because it's a difficult subject, and terms like hyperstatic union do not exactly get you very excited. There's a scene in an Alan Bennett play where a schoolmaster is checking that one of his pupils is ready and prepared for his forthcoming confirmation. The schoolmaster asks, now, you're sure you've got the catechism all buttoned up, Foster? Foster replies, I'm a bit hazy about the Trinity, sir. To which the schoolmaster says, three and one, one in three, perfectly straightforward. Any doubts about that, see your maths master. I think Dorothy Sayers was closer to what most people think when she wrote uh, in 1947... I've come to the conclusion that a short examination paper on the Christian religion might be very generally answered as follows. Question, what does the church think of God the Father? Answer, he is omnipotent and holy. He created the world and imposed on man conditions impossible of fulfillment. He is rather like a dictator, only larger and more arbitrary. Question, what does the church think of God the Son? Answer, he is in some way to be identified with Jesus of Nazareth. He has a good deal of influence with God, and if you want anything done, it is best to apply to him. Question, what does the church think of God the Holy Ghost? Answer, I don't know exactly, 
he was never seen or heard of till Whitsunday. There is a sin against him which damns you forever, but nobody knows what it is. Question, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Answer, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the whole thing incomprehensible. Something put in by theologians to make it more difficult. Nothing to do with daily life or ethics. Well, of course the doctrine of the Trinity is incomprehensible. Since it is an attempt to define God and the mode of his existence, it is bound to be. Nevertheless, it is central to the Christian faith and it is relevant because it is essential to everything else in the Christian faith. Now, I want to illustrate that by seeing how the Trinity relates to something that is fundamental to Christianity, and that is the Christian understanding and experience of salvation. Usually when people want to show how the Trinity is relevant, they talk about our experience of prayer. But this passage from Titus seems to me to tie it into the doctrine of salvation, and nothing could be more important or practical than salvation. The doctrine of the Trinity itself is succinctly set out in Article 1 of the 39 Articles of the Church of England, which I'm sure you read from time to time. There is but one living and true God, and in unity of this Godhead there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's set out more fully, of course, in the Athanasian Creed, which you can find in the Book of Common Prayer, and which we are meant to say on Trinity Sunday, and Easter Sunday for that matter, but we never do. Three persons in one Godhead, or another way of putting it, the one God exists eternally as three persons. Now part of our difficulty is the word person. The word person means rather more to us than it did to those who worked out this formula. To us, the word person means an individual being separate and distinct in its own existence. Herbert McCabe explains it well. He writes, Since then, since the doctrine was worked out, person has taken on a new and much thicker meaning. For us, a person is a separate centre of consciousness with its own separate mind, its own will, its own distinct personality. For us to say that there are three persons who are God would be like saying that there are three people who are God. It would be tritheism. That is part of our confusion. How can one God be three persons in that sense? But originally the word person meant something like a role in a play rather than a separate individual being. Now we need to think carefully here. When we apply this concept to God, we're not to think in terms of one actor appearing as different characters at different points in a play. It's not a case of God playing one role, then another, at different times in history. That would be the heresy called Sabellianism or modalism, as I'm sure you're all aware. It's more as though someone wrote 
a play, directed it, and played the lead role himself. So that he is author, director, and actor all at one and the same time. It's not a perfect analogy, of course, but it's not bad. The writer of the play, the lead actor, and actually directing the play even as he acts in it, all at one and the same time. Now, I know it can seem rather academic and abstract. So let's see how all this relates to the doctrine of salvation and turn to Titus and the passage that um, Rachel read. Clearly, this passage is all about salvation. Indeed, John Stock calls it perhaps the fullest statement of salvation in the New Testament. The word salvation appears in chapter 2, verse 11. The word saviour in chapter 2, verse 13. God our saviour in chapter 3, verse 4. The verb saved appears in 3, 5. We read Jesus Christ, our saviour, at the end of chapter 3, verse 6. So it is all about salvation. And in just a few lines, there is a very full doctrine of it here. We see, for example, the source of salvation. Chapter 2, verse 11, it is the grace of God. Chapter 3, verse 4, it is God's kindness and love. And the word love there is not just love in general, it's specifically love to man. Chapter 3, verse 5, we see the mention of God's mercy. And in chapter 3, verse 7, is grace again. Now all this points to the fact that the source of our salvation is in the character and the initiative of God. It all comes from him and nothing that we do of ourselves. It is undeserved. It is freely given. It is all God's initiative. So that it's summed up in the words of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9, which one scholar has called the central affirmation of the whole Bible. It is salvation comes from the Lord. He is the source of our salvation. But we see also the basis of our salvation. Chapter 2, verse 14, is clearly a reference to Christ's death on the cross. Our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And I'm sure I don't need to stress this in a church like St. Andrews, but in the New Testament, this is the sole basis of our salvation. You cannot do it yourself. You cannot even make a contribution. We are saved on the basis of the work of Christ. Hence, chapter 3, verse 5. God saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. This is the basis, the ground of our salvation. But how does all this apply to us? The death of Christ happened nearly 2,000 years ago. How does it become real in our own experience? How does it affect us? The means of our salvation is spelled out in the second half of chapter 3, verse 5 and verse 6. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit what we normally call the doctrine of regeneration being born again the terms rebirth and renewal mean a new beginning a making new 
in the sense of a recreation. But we also see the purpose of salvation. It's put negatively in chapter 2, verse 12. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And it's put positively at the end of chapter 2, verse 14. Christ gave himself for us to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager or zealous to do what is good. The idea comes again at the end of chapter 3, verse 8. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Not just something you do from time to time, but to be devoted to doing good term comes again in chapter 3 verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. We're not saved by good deeds then, but we are saved for them. It is the purpose of our salvation. Now you see also in these verses the three tenses of salvation, past, present and future. There is the past achievement of our salvation in the redemption through Christ and regeneration by the Spirit. There is the present outworking of it in godly living and good deeds. And we also see its future consummation in the two references to hope. Chapter 2 verse 13. We wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And again, chapter 3, verse 7. Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now what I want to draw your attention to is the way that all this presupposes the doctrine of the Trinity. Without the Trinity, it doesn't make sense. Jesus saved us by giving himself to redeem us. Our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. And the Spirit saved us by regenerating and recreating us. His divinity is not spelt out here, but what else could the Spirit of God be if not God? And when Paul refers to God in these verses, he seems to mean God the Father. So, for example, chapter 3, verse 5 again. God, that is God the Father, saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. All three persons of the Trinity working together. Now what would happen to the doctrine of salvation if one of these three were not involved in it or if one of these three, Father, Son and Spirit, were not divine? I wonder if you've ever had a, a wooden jumper and you find that there's a loose thread and you start to pull at it and fiddle with it and after a bit the loose end gets longer and longer and after a bit of pulling you realise that the whole thing is going to unravel and if you go on doing it you're going to end up with a mess on the floor and no more jumper a Christian theology in some respects is rather like that it is all of a piece, it all hangs together 
And if you pick at one bit and demolish it, it's interesting to see the effect it has on all the other bits of doctrine. And so it is with the Trinity and salvation. What, for example, if there were no God the Father? Who would there be then to accept the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf? Who would there be to justify us on the basis of it? Again, suppose there were no incarnate Son. Who then would be able to give himself to redeem us? Who would be big enough to be able to offer an eternal sacrifice for all the sins of all mankind? Suppose there were no Holy Spirit. How would any of it ever really have any effect on us? How would it become real in our own experience and in our lives? How would it touch us? In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Tim Chester makes the point that the New Testament understanding of Christ's death as a, an atonement collapses without the Trinity. Jesus had to be God to be able to make an eternal sacrifice that would be sufficient for all the sins of all mankind. And if he were not God, then however willing, he is in effect an innocent third party and the morality of the whole thing is highly questionable. On the other hand, if Christ is to offer a sacrifice, there has to be some kind of distinction within the Godhead for God to be able to accept the sacrifice that was offered. And once you start picking at bits of the Trinity, the whole doctrine of salvation seems to unravel and come to pieces. God himself is at one and the same time the one who offers, the one who accepts, and the one who applies to us the sacrifice made for our salvation. So Gerald Bray writes in his book The Doctrine of God, Without the love of the Son for the Father, which impelled him to make the sacrifice in the first place, Without the corresponding love of the Father for the Son, by which he accepted the Son's work and pronounced the word of forgiveness for us, our salvation could not have occurred. Furthermore, without the love of the Holy Spirit for both the Father and the Son, by which he brings this message to us and sounds the very depths of our hearts, Christ's work of love would have no meaning in our lives. The inner love of the persons of the Trinity is the very ground of our redemption. Christ's work of atonement on the cross was a work of God within the Trinity. It was the Son who offered himself as a sacrifice to the Father and it is the Holy Spirit who now makes that sacrifice effective in the life of the Christian. So the doctrine of the Trinity, incomprehensible? Yes, what would you expect? Difficult, certainly, but not irrelevant or unimportant. It is essential to what is at the very heart of Christianity, our salvation. So in the words of Bishop Thomas Ken, to God the Father who first
first loved us and accepted us in the Beloved, to God the Son who loved us and gave himself for us, to God the Holy Spirit who sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts, to the one true God be 